What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We were just talking before we started recording. This is, you know, each time I need to lead off the show with my monologue. And it's getting a little difficult because it's kind of like Groundhog Day now. You know, we've got a hot new episode about the fact that all the Democrats are up on Capitol Hill saying each day they're right on the verge of wrapping this whole thing up. And they're optimistic, and yet it doesn't happen. And there's a lot of negotiating in public, and uh, whatever soft deadline we were talking about, we kind of know is not gonna is not gonna be met. And now we have this new soft deadline, uh, and it, it, at least it's t- at least it's tied to something. It's not purely arbitrary, and it is that President Biden is going to Europe. I believe he's leaving tomorrow tomorrow, uh, Thursday, uh, the tw- uh, 28th of October. And uh, I guess he's going to hang out with a few different people, but there's a big climate thing in Europe. I guess it's like in Scotland. Um, and so there was a lot of desire for him to have a climate package to say, you know, we're, we're serious, we're doing stuff. Uh, and that is, as you know, one component of the you know, the whole agenda, build back better infrastructure, two bills, whatever you want to say. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, they just want it to be, they want it to be done. And, and a key thing, and, and who knows how much these things really matter, but there's been at least some chatter that there is fear that when the president leaves the country, uh, negotiations will slow down or peter out or whatever. Now, you know, we're in the 21st century here. We've got we got telephones, right? And uh, it's not like President Biden's up there on Capitol Hill, like you know, talking, you know, uh, negotiating with people. The the the, uh, the reverse is happening to some extent. You know, they call people over to the White House. They have a sit down with the president. Probably sit downs with other top advisors. But still, we are still at this. Still at this, still at this, still at this. And it seemed like, you know, it seemed like we had a breakthrough last week. And then we we're going to have, we we're going to have it wrapped up uh, last week. And uh, everybody was saying, you know, Joe Manchin was saying that, President, I mean, everybody was kind of, and then it didn't happen. Well, it pushed through. And uh, we've been having, you know, the, today's the deadline or tomorrow's the deadline. So, but you know, before we started, I, I was—I had just started working on a on a, on a post, and uh, it's a it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about when uh, the White House and, and and Democrats in Congress seem you know kind of right on the one yard line. But the president's popularity has really cratered over the last two or three months. There's, there's kind of no getting around it. It's, it's his public approval level has fallen by about 10 points. Now, in the old days, that was not, uh, you know, there was some precedent for that. It's much, it, it is much less common in the very polarized age that we live in. You know, uh, President Trump's numbers were sort of, I mean, they were they were lower, although honestly, at this point, not that much lower, which is kind of uncomfortable. But they were lower, but they were very static. 
And in many ways, the same was the case with President Obama, right? There's not massive undulations because most, most Americans have a side they're on, right? I mean, if you're a partisan Democrat, there's kind of almost nothing Biden can do that you're not going to say, oh, yeah, I approve because he's, he's, he's your candidate. And same thing for Republicans. So why is this? And, you know, there, there are really two things that are going on. The first is that people thought COVID was going to be done. And, and President Biden said he was going to end it. He was going to lead us out of the pandemic. And it really seemed like that was happening in the spring and into the summer. And then about midsummer, it's clear that it was not happening. Now, not enough people getting vaccinated, Delta, maybe some, some you know, deterioration of the protection from the vaccines. And then you've got all the, the economic things that are kind of, uh, uh, you know, follow on that. And that is, that is the kind of the biggest thing. But the other thing is, I have not heard the president talking for months about COVID. Not the way he was in the first months of his presidency. And the reason is because we're talking about this build back better agenda. And Democrats rightly say that it's a very popular set of programs. And they're right. You, you pull the things individually and even, and even to some extent as a, as a package and people support it. But for most people, it's not what they are thinking about right now. The world got turned upside down by COVID almost two years ago, year and a half ago. And they want it turned right side up. That's the big thing. And it's clearly not turned right side up. And we know that, I mean, that's not like, it's not like there was a lever that, that President Biden could push that he didn't push that, that you know, would have made it happen. But you have that reality about COVID and the fact that DC under Democratic management has spent several months arguing seemingly fruitlessly about this big mega plan none of which seems really connected to COVID or anything to do with COVID. And those two things are basically why the president has lost a lot of his popularity. Now, for Democrats, I think a lot of it is like, you're not getting it done. They're just demoralized because they wanted this to be done. They wanted it to be 3.5 trillion, blah, 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 blah. Um, but for a lot of people, they see, they see the government talking a lot about things and and may, mo, mostly talking about them, not actually accomplishing anything. And those things aren't even what they're focused on. And that all brings us back to, they got to wrap this up. And uh, there's various, because at the moment, you know, Democrats are demoralized. Uh, people who aren't, don't have strong partisan affiliations are just kind of like, what, what are you guys doing? You know, um, so it's all kind of a mess. And uh, we're 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 still in this still in this thing of negotiating in public. You know, something gets gets uh, proposed, and you see some quotes from Mansion, and maybe uh, uh, you know an a, an off the record or you know sources say about about cinema, and it just keeps it just keeps plotting on. So it is it really is kind of uh, Groundhog Day. So, uh, Kate Riga, my co-host, has been up uh, on Capitol Hill uh, most days over, well, most days kind of forever now as this has gone on. And I think you were up there this morning, right? Were you up there this morning or not Yesterday. yet today? Okay. So, so what is, you know, I, I have given the 30,000 foot uh, view. Uh, actually, before we get to that, let me, I forgot, I forgot Grady's. Let me just quickly run through this. Uh, temperature, ah, temperature's dropping, leaves are falling, the sun is setting halfway through your lunch break. But for everyone on Team Cold Brew, it's still iced coffee season. If you're a proud year-rounder, it's time to put on your mittens, fill your tumbler with ice, and top it off with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew. With regular and decaf options, you can finally enjoy velvety smooth cold brew all day, every day, even in the depths of winter. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right, Kate, what, what is what is going on? So I think you captured the dynamic well. Something that they, the senators keep saying, which is true, is, you know, there are only outstanding issues on a handful of proposals. And the further reality of that is that Mansion is now the problem on basically everything that's left. So... The areas of disagreement, the major ones that we have are 
uh, Medicaid expansion in states that didn't willingly expand coverage under the Affordable Care Act, expanding Medicare benefits to cover vision, uh, hearing, and dental, the prescription drug negotiation proposal, pretty much everything under climate. We have a top line for it, but it's not clear what programs will comprise that. Uh, Family leave. And then some details around the child tax credit and basically how to pay for the whole thing. So those are the big areas of contention. And on all but one of those, Manchin is the only one in disagreement with the rest of the caucus, which is why they can't come to a deal. Now, I thought cinema was still uh, just a flat no on the on the drug price negotiation stuff. She was initially, but... The latest that I've heard is they're trying to strike a compromise where a small group of drugs is still falls under this umbrella rather than a flat no. So it would be much less than what, you know, Bernie Sanders wants, but we're not we're not at a place where it's fallen out of the package. And the way people are describing it as as recently as yesterday is that they are optimistic there will be some form of this proposal in there, just probably significantly scaled back. And on the Medicaid thing, so that is basically just to review under Obamacare, uh, states were given the choice to opt in and then they would be given subsidies and they have to put in a small contribution of their own. As we know, it became very partisanized. Many, many Republican run states refused. Some of them have have over time relented and just, you know, it's it's kind of obviously a good deal for the states, even if they're ideologically against it. And so what this would do is basically just not make it a choice anymore. Right. OK. Uh, all right. So um, basically, it's all settled, except uh, Manchin disagrees with several of the programs and, ha- and also what taxes are going to pay for it. Right. So, I mean, the big buckets, <laughs> basically, like a lot. <laughs> right. And so it's basically everything they want to do on healthcare is still undecided. Everything they want to do on climate is at least not nailed down. And then every way to pay for the package minus the corporate minimum tax, which they came to an agreement on last night, is still up in the air. And, and OK, so I wasn't at, at, at one point, I thought that when they started talking about this corporate minimum tax, which seemed to be the one thing that everybody agreed on, um, I, I well, get to what, why why that might be. Um, I thought at first that that might, the idea might be that that replaced the billionaire thing, but that's not the case. The idea is uh, both of them that 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 you need two or three of these uh, revenue generators, and that's the whole thing. Right. Angus King told a group of reporters yesterday that it the corporate minimum tax could garner up to $400 billion over 10 years. So big chunk, but not enough to cover a package that's going to be somewhere in the high 1.7, 1.9 trillion. Right. Okay. So, and and then I saw there was uh, a few quotes from Joe Manchin swirling around this morning where he basically... It, it, was, it was a very Joe Manchin type line in that he said he's very uncomfortable with the billionaires thing. And, and, and basically, I mean, there, there's 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 one kind of decent argument against it, but, but it which is like uh, mechanics based, for lack of a better word. Um, but what he was saying was sort of, you know, kind of amounted to these people have already done so much for the country. Why are we why are we, you know, uh uh, why are we punishing them for, you know, why are we repaying them this way? So, you know, kind of, you know, they've created so many jobs. They're such great philanthropists. Uh, certainly many of them are uh, pretty decent philanthropists, but, you know, this is all kind of a bit neither here nor there. Um, but like a lot of things with Manchin, um, you know, he doesn't need to come up with a good explanation. He's just, uh, you know, what he thinks he thinks doesn't, right. like I said, he doesn't need an explanation. And I would say on the billionaire's tax in particular, Manchin is not the only potential problem. Warner has expressed discomfort with it. Uh, Tester and Kane are more in the category of like, like you said, concerned about how it's going to be implemented uh, rather than disagreeing with the spirit of the tax. But there's definitely, and there's some issues with it in the house too. So on that particular one, Manchin is not the only potential problem. But, you know, it's like everything else. All it takes is one senator. And if he comes out against it the strongest, then there right, you go. Right, right, right. Well, I, and I guess, so just for people who haven't followed this that closely, 
the idea here, I mean, generally speaking, the way tax law works is that you pay capital gains when you realize them. So you buy a stock at one dollar. Ten years later, you spell you spend it. You know, you sell it for a hundred dollars. It's at that sale that you pay on the money you made on that stock. And you know, this applies to all sorts of things you sell or gains you make on investments and stuff like that. That you that it happens at the point of sale. Uh, in some contexts, it happens um, when someone dies. Uh, but but the, the gist is that we have evolved to a place where uh, most of the people in the country with the big, big, big money um, have that money uh, in, in uh, equities that they, that they basically will never sell and maybe can be passed on to their heirs without, without being realized. And so basically, people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or kind of, you know, the mere billionaires, uh, um, you know, among us, Kind of will never pay tax on 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 what is their real wealth and in effect their real income and 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 it seems pretty clear you need a way to deal with that fact. Um, what this is is basically if your assets appreciate enough, you will have to pay a tax on them even if you don't realize them. So even if you so you know Jeff Bezos has all this Amazon stock that has you know grown in value by, you know, millions of orders of magnitude over the last 25 years, that he will have to pay tax on some of that, even if he doesn't sell the stock. Um, and there are just some, there are some legitimate questions about how that's going to work in practice. Um, and then you've got, you know, maybe like Manchin, who just doesn't think it's nice, which is, you know, another kind of, uh, an, another kind of problem. And I, and I guess it is worth saying that uh, there are, it's always hard to say what is a legitimate constitutional question in this day and age, because the, the composition of the federal judiciary, uh, you know, they might throw out anything Democrats do, even if there's really no issue at all. And here, there's at least, there's at least some issue. Uh, the, 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 the basis of federal income tax is tied to income you know, in, in the actual amendment that, that makes all that possible. And is this income? It's unrealized income. It's, it's plenty to get you into an appellate court discussion uh, and probably with judges who were appointed by Trump and maybe a few by Bush and, and might not be that sympathetic to this at the policy level. So there you go. So is, when, when you're up there, Kate, in the last week or so, is there a, you know, we know watching this from the outside that it's groundhog's day you know that we're going to be doing this for the next 10 years basically um i guess the only the only real uh the only real time limit is is when the democrats are are shattered in the midterm election because they haven't managed to pass any laws and 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 the conversation has to stop then but among the senators you keep talking to are they kind of thinking like wow we're right at we're right here we're about we're right about to do this and and b do they have a sense of kind of that, that I think a lot of people on the outside do is like, you got to finish this because like the consequences are, are, are really big. They definitely do. And I think that's been a bit intensified by Biden's European travel. I think they're aware at this point that it's kind of embarrassing that it's been taking them so long, or at least it's not optically great. Right. So okay. there is definitely a, a pressure that they want to send him with something to brag about or some sense of momentum that he can talk about. Um, and, you know, when Biden came in to speak about to the House Democrats a few weeks ago during that kind of first forward surge of momentum, he put it in terms of we need to pass this so we can prove to other countries that American democracy is functional. So I think that's a big point kind of underlying the urgency. And I think the problem and the frustration is that if Manchin would just agree to everything that the other 49 senators want, they probably would be able to finish by the end of the day. So now, let, me, let me ask you, so is, are we clear now that basically that is the case, that they have retooled this to pass cinema's muster, but now Manchin is, is, is the issue? Right. The only outstanding issue, uh, unless I'm missing something, but the only one at the front of my mind is the the drug 
the prescription drug negotiations where she's the big issue. But on that, it's also it's not just her. Um, Menendez has an issue as well. House Democrats do too. It's kind of based on whatever connection they have to the pharmaceutical industry, whether that be, you know, they're big funders of their campaigns or they happen to be located in some headquarters for some pharma company. Um, And I guess with Menendez, it's kind of both. Right. (laughs) A huge number of the pharma companies are, are located in New Jersey. Right. So she's not really alone there, but, you know, Manchin is on an island by himself when it comes to you know, family leave, uh, the Medicaid expansion, the figuring out the climate stuff. I mean, if not for him, they would just do a methane fee and that would be a big chunk of it. But he's cool about that as well. Um, you know, the, you have Kirsten Gillibrand is kind of lobbying him individually on family leave, coming up with plan after plan to try to give him something that he'll take. Um and it's kind of this same idea of what he said about the billionaire's tax when he, he comes out with this kind of silly reasoning that, I mean, what do you say about that? You know, I, th- I think they're they're treating him with kids gloves because they don't want him to get mad um, and kind of take proposals off the table altogether. But it's a dance. It's a delicate dance. Well, yeah, I guess it's 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 funny because on the one hand, you mentioned and I keep seeing uh, stories like this that, you know, Senator X is working with Manchin or Senator Y is working with, you know, kind of like individually lobbying them, brainstorming, trying to come up with a policy that, you know, that that fits everything together. But the funny thing is for both of them, um, and in some ways more than Manchin, when he speaks, and it is certainly my impression from the reporting that it is not a, a, a significantly different story um, when it's behind closed doors, when he, when he speaks, his points almost never speak to the policy details of any of the things in question. Like if he, if he had said with the billionaire's tax, look, taxing unrealized gains is just hugely complicated. And how do you evaluate things that are not in, you know, publicly traded markets? That's just a mess. And, and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to make a, a dramatic new turn in how we run the tax code on, you know, on a, on a day's notice. Okay. I mean, you can agree or disagree with that, but those are real points. But just kind of like we need to kind of, you know, billionaire lives matter, basically, you know, kind of we can't, we need to pull together in this country and and they've done so like, well, I don't, I don't know how you, it's in many of these cases, I'm a little unclear how you solve this by rejiggering the 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 policy details when he doesn't seem to be really paying a lot of attention to the policy details in the first place now i guess the counter to this is that in other in many other cases you've had these rejiggerings and he gets on board and you know but it's it is uh it is a little a little unclear how, how you how you make these things work when he seems to be kind of shooting from the hip and just, you know, just kind of what we've been doing the whole time, which is, oh, that sounds a little liberal to me. Exactly. I don't want to be too liberal, you know, and kind of like, well, dude, what <laughs> what do you do with that? Right. I mean, kind of it's just it it's 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 reflexive and it's it, it's vague and it's 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 what do you do? And it's also just totally weirdly divorced from his constituency. You know, I've been talking to Sherrod Brown a lot about the child tax credit because I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with it. And he that's an issue that he kind of has taken on the personal lobby of Manchin on and has been pushing him because West Virginia is a comparatively quite poor state in the country. So his constituency would obviously greatly benefit from having uh, a credit that's accessible to the poorest families. And you know, Manchin has been really dead set on having work requirements attached to it, which uh, is kind of in direct contradiction to this effort to make the credit permanently fully refundable, you know, so it's accessible to people who make so little income, they don't pay taxes. There's a push by Democrats, I reported on this last week, to make it that way, no matter what the value of the child tax credit is. So if, if Republicans win a chamber in 2022 and refuse to kind of reauthorize the enhanced child tax credit uh, that we have right now that looks like might get extended for one year in the package, if that expires, we drop down to a less generous version of the tax credit. But 
Democrats are pushing to make whatever version it is fully refundable forever. So the poorest families who are boxed out of getting that full credit before can now get it. And Sherrod Brown has been lobbying Manchin on that because his work requirements are in direct contradiction. You know, the, the point of making it fully refundable is so families who are out of work or whose parents are disabled can still get the money. And, you know, he, he was saying to me, I'm trying to tell him that, you know, look at families in your own states that are headed by retired grandparents, right? It makes no no sense to have a work requirement attached to that. Um, and it's just, it's funny because they are making all these policy arguments and then you kind of you hear his, oh, I don't want to have an entitlement state. And you're like, well, <laughs> OK, but. <laughs> well, the thing, the, the the other, I mean, Republicans historically have often been very into, or at least a slice of the Republican Party has been very into child tax credits because mm-hmm. as long as they're not fully refundable. Yep. Because just for our listeners, something like half the people in the country don't pay income tax. They're not, they don't make enough money to pay income tax when you figure in some deductions and stuff like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything. They, they have no, they have nothing to deduct against. So the whole point of having them fully refunded is that it actually, you know, w- when you have it, the version Republicans want, people who make really good money get it or make, you know, sometimes they're capped, but basically people who make good incomes get it and they can use it to, you know, pay for private school or do whatever, you know pay for anything they want with it. Um, so the, the refundability is the, is, the, is, is the key issue. If you don't have that, it's basically just a, a tax cut, not necessarily for wealthy people, but certainly for people who don't need it the most. And, mm-hmm. and, and you mentioned before people out of work, you don't need to be out of work to not pay federal income taxes. Again, yep. if I, I don't, I, it's, it's roughly half the country doesn't pay any federal income tax. That doesn't mean they don't pay tax. There's lots of other ways you can pay tax. I mean, the biggest one being payroll taxes, um, but federal income. So, yeah. Well, and it's also the thing with the child tax credit in particular. It's just, you know, they have already run studies showing that this tax credit, which was passed in that COVID relief package they passed back in March. I mean, it lifted millions of children above the poverty line in the first month that it was distributed. So I think that's why I'm kind of so fascinated by it is not only because it would radically change our relationship with poor people in this country, but also because it seems so politically a slam dunk to run on lifting children out of poverty. I don't know. I guess it just sounds well. That's the thing. You'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be you'd be surprised. Um, that is that is not necessarily for a lot of the electorate a big um, yeah a, a big thing. Now explain this to us. What is the one of the kind of the maddening things here is that you you seem to cue a lot of these programs up just to be killed or rather not funded um, if Republicans take one or both houses of Congress uh, next year, which is far from like, an, you know, a, a long, long shot possibility. So what is the logic there? Is that to kind of, th- that's to keep the price tag down? But like, if you're making it permanent, then, then how is that even part of a price tag at all? Or th- this is kind of one of the ins and outs of the reconciliation System? With the tax credit in particular, you mean? Well, I, in this case, you know, why wouldn't you make it permanent? I make assume... it permanently fully refundable or make the tax yes. credit permanent? Okay. Well, both make it, I mean, maybe I'm confusing myself here. Isn't that what we're talking about? Well, it's a tax credit, but making it fully refundable. Yeah. The thing that's in contradiction right, with that is Manchin's work requirements. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. So it's so, but, but if you make it, for one year, mm-hmm. as opposed to not permanent, mm-hmm. then that's not a work requirement I- issue, is it? Or th- or- oh, no. So, okay. So the, there's two issues on parallel tracks here. They're making it permanently refundable, no matter at what value the child tax credit is. And then taking the more generous $300 a month tax credit passed in the COVID relief package and making that run for as long as possible. Right. Permanent is what it's, it's uh, big proponents wanted. But the child tax credit is relatively expensive, so it was pretty clear from the beginning that it wouldn't be permanent. Right. So, so my point there is, is mm-hmm. the reason you're not making it permanent is that you want to keep the the overall price tag right. down, the overall yes. price tag of the whole thing. Right. And then they're taking, they're making the political calculus that 
it's much harder to take away a benefit after you've given it to people so that even if Republicans do take over in 2022, hopefully they'll have the permanent refundability in place. So there's a bit of a safety net. Right. right, And then hoping that they won't be able to not reauthorize the more generous tax credit because families will have already gotten used to having that financial cushion and will be mad if they take it away. So. Right. Right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So. Where do we stand? I mean, so you were telling us before we went on the air, and just for our listeners, we're, we're recording this uh, about the noon hour on Wednesday, the 27th. So your sense was that they're not going to get this. I saw, I saw uh, Chuck Schumer have a statement like he's optimistic about finishing <laughs> up by the end of the day, hopeful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, you're think, not thinking that's, that's going to happen. No, I mean... It's so it's it's so hard to gauge these things because so much of it is in private and sometimes there's momentum on stuff we don't even know there's momentum about. Like the the corporate minimum tax kind of happened all of a sudden yesterday evening that Elizabeth right. Warren's like, Okay, here it is, we got all fifty senators, we're done. Right, um, right, right, right. But the issues that we've enumerated are not only are they large they have very, very passionate proponents, which I think is a big reason why they're kind of dragging on because with other issues that Manchin opposes, if it's not your make or break policy, you're going to be like, okay, fine, I'm, but I'm dying on this other hill. And right, I think we've right, now right. reached the hills where people are dying on because, right. you know, they feel that the Healthcare expansions are super important and uh, hard to do, you know, and we're, we're at the end of the process and they're still a live ball. So they won't kind of give them up. Right. Um, and I think there's also the sense that like you concede to Manchin because of the political calculus. But do you have to concede to him on every single thing? I mean, maybe they do. And maybe that's where we'll end up. But we haven't reached the point, I think, where people are willing to be like, okay, you can win on every single issue. You never have to compromise. Um, well, I guess his, you know, there was that there was that quote that I'm sure his people leaked to like Axios or something like that, where he got into a an argument with Bernie Sanders, yeah. and he said basically, "Hey, I'm fine with zero. Yeah, you know, you want it to be zero? Fine, I'm happy with zero. Which, you know, I think is the reality. I mean. Again, you can you can dress up the reality any way you want. And the reality is that Democrats need that vote and he has the vote. And 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 that, uh, you know, this was sort of the issue with the the BIF bill. I still don't know quite why it's called is what bipartisan. Wait, infrastructure framework is it is F framework or is, is I F don't know. infrastructure? I got I is thought it was super issue. dumb. So I stopped paying yeah. attention to it. But yeah. anyway, uh, the reality is, is that everybody else, it's not really the progressives, but everybody else, they wanted a lot more. They want this real bad. And, and Manchin, even with the infrastructure bill, he wants it. Not the end of the world if it doesn't happen. He kind of doesn't care. And, the, and anybody, you know, in any uh, negotiation, the person who wants it more is always, always at a big disadvantage. That's, right. just, that's just the reality. Right. And... Now we're kind of, we're not coming up against hard deadlines. We're coming up against deadlines that will make Democrats' lives harder if they don't kind of basically pull this together in the next day, which is October 31st is when the highway funding expansion bill expires. Again, that's a patch, not a big deal. They could just repatch it. But it's going to bring up the same standoff that we had last time where House moderates and Senate moderates are like, well, let's pass bipartisan infrastructure. It's so important, blah, blah, blah. And progressives are like, no, (laughs) like we've said from the beginning, these two things are linked. We don't want to give up that leverage. But one small thing that's different than last time is like we said last time, House progressives got a lot of kudos for hanging firm and for saying we absolutely will not vote on the bipartisan bill without uh, a vote on the reconciliation bill. But as we said then, they were getting so little pressure from congressional leadership as to bleed into support from congressional leadership on that stance. And same from the White House. Huh? And same from the White House. Exactly. Clyburn wasn't whipping. You know, Jayapal would come out of her meetings with Pelosi being like, oh, she's great. We have a great relationship, you know, and same with the White House, like you say. The difference this time is that Jayapal has been saying, 
a framework isn't enough. They want back-to-back votes on the bipartisan bill and the reconciliation bill to make sure there's no funny business. Pelosi yesterday told reporters that a framework is enough. That, you know, if they get... And we, everyone keeps saying framework. What framework means to the general understanding is a top line number and basically like an outline of the major programmatic elements that will be in it. So if they have that, Pelosi says that should be enough for you to vote on the bipartisan bill. And it's, you know, a lot of this is motivated by what you said earlier, Josh, which is everyone's feeling a sense of urgency. They're feeling like they got to pass something. They're losing people. The president's becoming unpopular. They really, really want to have something to show for these months of agonizing negotiations. But Well, and, and not just, I mean, speaking for myself here, but I mm-hmm. think this is probably matches some of the thinking. It's not just something to show for it. It's getting on to other things. Yeah. This well, is, this is, this is, you know, all the oxygen. You can't, you know, kind of, there's nothing else. Right. Um, and no, there's also the filibuster, which we'll get to towards well, the end but, of the show. But, but but for the for a president, that is not the only thing. Pre- president passing legislation is not the only thing a president does. Right. In a sense, it's not something he does at all. Um, there is certainly in terms of his leadership, uh, in terms of his standing, um, he the the covid and the covid economic dislocations these things are these things are pretty intractable they're really hard to solve um but i think one of the big problems they're having is that from the outside it doesn't even look like they're paying attention to that it yeah. looks like they're spending all of their time doing this you know bizarre hand holding exercise up on capitol hill um so when i say move on to other stuff yeah, I don't think they're, it's not like they're going to be moving on to passing voting rights or, you know, immigration reform or, or you know, the other 10 things I've, I've forgotten about because they're so hopeless at this point. I'm talking about getting focused on the thing that is still the big thing that the country is focused on, which is COVID, right. which is when does this end? When do we give a, get back to a normal life? That's a really good point. So we shouldn't mention, though, there was a a failed voting rights effort, what, last week? week There's been so many. Who can can keep track? Right. There was one that came basically at the end of all of Manchin's courting of Republicans, his insistence that, yes, there are 10 Republicans to expand voting rights. And of course, there weren't. There were zero. Um, And we're going to have an upcoming vote on the John Lewis Act, which will probably basically result in the same thing. Uh, Kane told me he'd be surprised if they got one Republican for that either. Um, so I asked around a bit yesterday, you know, where are we on the filibuster and voting rights? We had this kind of, you know, so a bit of news that during a CNN town hall, Joe Biden came out more aggressively in favor of transformational filibuster reform than he has before. It's a subject he's been kind of coy about, you know, as people have to say, he's a creature of the Senate and he doesn't, uh, he's not comfortable doing away with the rule. But during the town hall, he said he'd be open to drastically altering how it works. And when the host kind of pressed him and was like, does that mean a voting rights carve out? Biden said, and maybe more. So it's a more aggressive stance than we've seen from him before which I thought was notable at the time because something that filibuster, anti-filibuster advocates keep telling me is that Biden is kind of the only remaining untapped resource here. And that if he were to apply pressure to Manchin and Cinema, that might be the only thing that would move the dial. So anyway, I asked around about these issues. Basically, do you feel like uh, the ball has moved on the filibuster? Does it feel like anything has changed? And basically everyone said no. And I think the biggest reason is because they're so stuck in the reconciliation stuff right now that they can't, no one is even in this mindset of kind of looking ahead to the rest of the stuff that they can or want to do because it's sucking up every moment of oxygen, you know? So we're just in this weird stasis where everyone keeps saying we're close to a deal because we are, if you look at the fact that, well, there are six outstanding issues and there are like a billion different things in this bill. So relatively, that's fairly close. But it all hinges on what Manchin will allow, basically. So I don't know. We're just It's in this weird limbo where it feels like 
people have been telling me variations of we're almost in the end zone for like months at this point. Right, 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 right. All right. So let's, why don't we get, we have some good questions today. So why don't we, why don't yeah. we get onto the questions? Okay. Um, we'll start with this one from Sam who says, who asked if we can talk a bit more about the problem of gerrymandering and whether there has been any movement or progress in Congress to address it. Um, I remember Josh mentioning that gerrymandering is one of the big problems persisting in U.S. politics. Is there any sign that could be addressed either separately or through larger voting rights legislation? This kind of ties into what we were just talking about. Democrats have multiple pieces of legislation to tackle gerrymandering, all of which are filibusterable. So, yeah, I think that's the point is, is that there's no there's no issue of needing different ways to go about it or standalone bills or anything like that. There is a basic way the, the Constitution gives the federal government broad and almost total powers to set the rules for how federal elections work. It, it's the state's responsibility to start with, but the federal government can come in and, and overrule the states or set rules for the states. Okay. So uh, at least in the real world, you know, kind of who knows with this Supreme Court, that means that Congress can legislate this. And the way you do that is to basically set up a, a set of um, a set of rules for how redistricting works. And how that works in the bill we're talking about is basically uh, two-tiered. One is that it uh, makes you set up commissions, uh, you know, kind of uh, nonpartisan commissions to do this. And or I guess it, it it suggests one way and then it gives you a set of rules that you can maybe come up with your own way. But basically, you got to you got to move this to to um, uh, to commissions. And then the other is that it sets a set of a, a set of standards. Basically, you can't you can't just maximize partisan interest in when you when you do this. And that the, the key there is 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 that it it gives the courts something to litigate. You know, there was a there was a big push a couple years back that uh, gerrymandering opponents got a case to the Supreme Court and basically said, like, this is too much. You can't you can't uh, redistrict in a way that that dis, disfran disenfranchises black people or you can't do it where you kind of disenfranchise one party or something like that. And what the court said was basically, yeah, but who are we to say where that line is? So we just this is the political process. And and so a lot of what is in this bill is to basically say, OK, here are the standards we are giving you. This is Congress saying these are the standards. And so you at least create a framework um, to judge whether whether uh, redistricting plans are OK. I don't think anybody who's involved in this thinks that that will make uh, every redistricting perfect. Um, but at the moment, it's basically as crazy a map as you can create is fine, right? And so we know how you significantly move the ball to fix it. And the problem is that there's the filibuster. And that's really the entire thing. There's really nothing. That, it's not a matter of coming up with a different strategy or something like that. There's uh, only Democrats will support it. And that's kind of the entire thing. Yeah, I did some reporting a month or two ago where I talked to voting rights type people to ask, you know, what happens in the case of them just not being able to pass the voting rights legislation or not being able to for months because of reconciliation. And they told me you can challenge unfair maps retroactively. You can take them to court. But then your whole strategy and for Democrats, a strategy that could make or break their control of Congress lies in the hands of basically who makes up the court, what kind of judges you have. Are they Trumpy people? Are they liberal people? It just gets much messier and harder to do retroactively. But I think we already have six state maps approved at this point and more are coming out by the day. And before long, you know, we're just going to get so close to the 2022 midterms that nothing's in place, you know, none of the voting reforms. So it is yeah. a, it's a thing that they that basically, as one guy put it to me, it would have been optimal if they passed this in January, 
because particularly in the independent commission part, like you need to put up names and get people's approval. And it's, it's a whole long process that like that ship has probably already even sailed by now for 2022. Yeah, I think uh, the, the people who and we did a few uh, uh, briefings about this, I think most of the people who whose opinion I respect on this see the big deal as those standards that it creates. Yeah. Um, because commissions, you can play around a lot with commissions, right? I mean, who's really... Uh, is you know disinterested or or you know unaffiliated or not concerned with partisan advantage, and I think it is a given that you that the the commission part of this is just not doable for 2022. But the standards would be doable. Um, so if you passed it right now, it's st- it it would have a real effect. Maybe not you know. Maybe not everything that you could have had if you had it in advance, but um, there's still plenty of time to have it have an effect. But again, this entirely comes down to getting 51 votes is not enough. You need 60 votes. Right. Okay. Um, our other question is from Scott, who says, what the hell is a framework agreement? And how bound will Cinema and Mansion be by such an agreement? I.e., are they going to pull the football away from the progressives? Uh, basically asks our, our prognostication on how likely it is that there could be a, a a yes vote on the bipartisan bill and then reconciliation falls apart. So, I mean, I think the fear of that delinkage has been, you know, the biggest kind of motivating factor for how progressives have been acting and why Jayapal now is saying a framework isn't enough. We want back-to-back votes, you know, no room for moderates to squirm out of it. And I can I can see a future where we come to a reconciliation framework and maybe by then the pressure gets to the progressives and they they're like, OK, fine, we'll vote for the bipartisan bill. If maybe Pelosi puts all her credibility on the line is like, I won't I won't let you guys adrift at sea. And the framework would entail, you know, top line number, major programs that are going to be in it. I think where you could have issues is the, you know, the details of how the programs will be implemented or how they could be drawn up. And I could see that being potentially grounds for disagreement or disappointment from progressives who said, you know, I signed up on this thinking it would be implemented like this, not like this, not with these loopholes, that kind of thing. I do not It's hard for me to see a situation where they come to this agreement, they pass bipartisan, and then Mansion and Cinema are like, you know what, never mind. We're unsigning the framework. We're not going to vote for it at all. Yeah, I I think that is right, and and you know this is this is but this is also just a a barometer of of how little trust there is at this Mm -hmm. point. Um, I and and I'm this kind. Basically, with Pelosi on this, I, it obviously all matters what you mean by a framework. It seems to me if you have a framework where you have a fixed top line number and you say we're going to do this program, this program, this program, and this program, and you know the basic questions, that's going to have a means test. Uh, this climate, you know, the the basic ones that we're all arguing about, and the rationale there would be: look, we got to write, we got to write out the bill. Right. You can't we're not going to we can't do this in the next six hours. We need like three or four days. We're going to do it Monday. But here we all have an understanding. I think given where things are, they need to swallow hard and 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 do that. And I do think that if they get clarity on those points, if the agreement is, you know, between the president and Pelosi and Schumer and 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 the two holdouts, I do think it will hold, if only because, I mean, what we're talking about is what they want, right? I mean, we're basically at this point, like talking about a $1.5 trillion deal. I mean, you know, I, I think I think everyone else is hoping it's going to be 1.7, 1.9, but it's like, you know, kind of at, at some level, why would they pull out? It's what they wanted, right? I mean, they won. Uh, and I just think that, um, you know, I don't want to be too... Uh, catastrophizing about it, but the kind of the house is burning down around them. They, they, they gotta, they have to, um, you know, they have to move this forward. And there's also a piece of this that I think maybe gets, gets brushed under the rug a bit, which is that 
the members themselves are very involved to a certain extent. And then their staffs kind of take over. So, and we're still at the point where they're very involved, but like Tim Kaine put this in uh, well to me when I was talking to him about whether or not kind of clearing reconciliation would open up space for voting rights to become the next big issue. And he was saying, you know, you get to an agreement on the top line stuff, on the numbers, on the big programs, on the issues people have with the program's implementation, you know, like work requirements, like means testing, stuff like that. And at that point, you know, the way he put it, it's like, you you know, you shake hands, you pose for photos, and then staff basically takes over writing the legislative text. So there is, a you know, a level to which the members kind of agree on what is an outline, you know, a detailed outline, but an outline. And then it, it goes down to the lower levels to kind of flesh everything out and make sure, uh, you know, it's all it's all good to go and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I, I don't think the difference is ever kind of like reconciliation framework versus members kind of signing off on like every single paragraph that's going to be in the bill. Right. But I think Jayapal, and I totally, I understand where the progressives are coming from because they have been the team players this whole time. It's been the mansion and the cinemas who, you know, are doing the my way or the highway thing. But you know, if, if Jayapal insists on kind of holding out for back-to-back votes, which means that the bill is totally done and totally written, you know, I, there's there's no way that's going to happen before this comes up again with the bipartisan bill. Right. The question of whether a framework can be reached is seeming more remote to me by the day. Um, but, you know, they I guess they have a, a few more days left. The extension, the highway extension expires on the 31st. So that's really when they are either going to have to pass another patch or see if the bipartisan bill can go through. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, on that note, uh, let me remind everybody that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. So you back up to the hill? Yep. All right. Talk soon. Talk soon. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 